Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Words of Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is the fascinating Ben Narison, venture partner at New Enterprise Associates, or NEA, a global venture capital firm focused on helping entrepreneurs build transformational businesses across multiple stages, sectors, and geographies. Founded in 1977, NEA has received nearly $24 billion in cumulative committed capital since day one. Ben is not only a prolific investor, but also a celebrated founder who launched FashionMall.com in 93 and took the company public six years later. We talked about Ben's journey and entrepreneurial ambitions, a deep dive into his experience taking FashionMall public via IPO and the challenges it entailed, the transition from entrepreneur to investor, elements that he looks for in every founder, and how COVID has influenced his investment process, as well as plenty of stories and anecdotes from his exciting journey. Let's get started with Ben Narison. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the Words on Fintech podcast. Really honored to have you join us, I assume all the way from California. Well, before we get started to talk about fintech and venture, maybe we can hear a little bit about you and how you got started and the trajectory that took you to this role. Sure. I'll give you a quick background. So Ben Narison, I'm currently a venture partner at NEA. I also do seed investing directly. I started off as an entrepreneur when I was 12. Started my first business by running a comic book dealership, going to comic cons around the Atlanta area. That did well. My dad gave me a loan of $50 and I came home with $1,500 in a paper bag and he became a big supporter of entrepreneurship in me and I became an entrepreneur. So I did that for, I don't know, six, seven years, built it from like a $50 bill to about $100,000 inventory. Then we moved to Japan, but net net rolled into other businesses over time. The one that's most relevant is that in 93, I started one of the first e-commerce companies in the world called fashionmall.com because the business prior to that I had was a menswear company and I felt like it was the one area where I had enough network and domain expertise to protect it. And I assumed everybody would understand the power of the web. It took people a lot longer to understand the power of the web than I had anticipated. But that's all right, because my other choice was to start a bookstore. And if I'd done that, you know, Jeff would have kicked my butt. So glad that I did what I did. Ended up taking that company public in 99, took it private after that, because I never raised venture capital. And so I had control of the business. And so when the sort of bubble burst, you know, we went from being a profitable company pre-IPO to a company that was really fighting to get paid about 20% of what it was asking to get paid just days before the bubble burst. We had sort of created, I've been told, the concept of cost per click in 94. And, you know, when you go from charging a dollar click to people not even being willing to pay you 20 cents and your market doesn't get bigger and your team doesn't get smaller, it gets pretty tough. So we ended up having a really good outcome for our investors by taking it private. People got paid well. We actually dividended out three times the share price before we did that to make sure everybody got all their capital. Anyway, all that led me to moving towards California. Ended up in California about 17 years ago. And really just such a wellspring of entrepreneurship out here. And I got enamored of that and became a seed investor. So I was one of the first institutional seed investors, started in about 2007 and uh, made about 80 investments. The second investment I ever made was Lending Club. So that sort of got me immediately into fintech, did Cabbage, another recent exit, did a lot of others, Realty Mogul and Circle Up and quite a few, but funded about 80-ish companies over a decade, got to know a lot of VCs. And through that process, ended up being asked to join a firm where I became a general partner and then later joined NEA as a venture partner. 
So, you know, it's sort of my whole life is entrepreneurship in one flavor or another. The way I look at it, I'll be an entrepreneur until the day I die. I just happen to be living vicariously through other entrepreneurs for some of my later decades. Fascinating. Definitely a lot to unpack there. And before we talk about your transition from entrepreneur to investor, I wanted to ask you specifically about the process of taking a company public, the process of IPO. I mean, you went through it. We haven't had a lot of guests with that kind of experience. When you look back to specifically that event, what comes to mind? It's funny. I was having breakfast. It's pretty rare, but I've had about six breakfasts over the last three months. You know, sit outside, do all the right precautions. Um, so I wanted to catch up with one of my founders from my prior investing history. We're having breakfast, and he's talking about the fact that he could either go public via SPAC now in sort of Q1 of this coming year, or he could go public in a traditional way a year later. And what did I think? And we talked about the pluses and minuses of each and all that. And he said, well, you know, I'm just not sure I want to I'm ready to be a public company if I want to be a public CEO. And I literally laughed out loud. It was like every entrepreneur, every young entrepreneur that has a chance to go public says that. And I don't think any of them have ever meant it. Because at least the way I thought about it, the IPO was the pinnacle crowning event that sort of proved a certain level of entrepreneurial talent, ability, or whatever you want to call it. And don't misunderstand me. Luck is required. Luck is always required for entrepreneurial success. The harder you work, the luckier you get, but you still have to be graced with it. And sometimes that luck is timing, sometimes location, sometimes it's, you know, all kinds of different things. But it was like, what do you mean? I was like, you want to be an entrepreneur that's running a public company. You say that, but it's a false humility. It's just, it was a funny moment. And he didn't fight back on it. So, you know, I think every entrepreneur talks about, do I want to be public when the time comes? Because they wonder and think about all these different elements, but inside they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to take this company public. You know, the, I was one of the very first founders, or CEOs rather, I guess at the time, I was the founder and the CEO, but in the role of CEO to have to sign off on the, the Sarbanes-Oxley documentation, you know, as a, in my founding role. Because prior to my IPO, there was no such thing as Sarbanes-Oxley. That passed. I still remember when the lawyers said, you know, you have to sign this document about the accounting. I said, I already did. He said, no, 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 this is a new one. So, well, tell me about it. I said, well, it's this thing called Sarbanes-Oxley and we talked about it a little bit before, but I'd never been faced by it. And I said, well, what happens? I said, well, you're attesting to the fact that everything in your accounting and reporting is accurate. I'm like, I'm not an accountant. I, I paid somebody to do that. I believe them, but I don't know every single thing in there. What if I'm wrong? Well, you could go to jail. <laughs> it's like, well, then I don't want to sign it. Well, then you'll be delisted. It's like, wow, okay, that's a pretty terrible situation. Because there is no way, no matter how knowledgeable any CEO is, they know everything that went on in every single piece of their business in every possible way. I get the intent of the law, but you know it was a fascinating <laughs> demand, so to speak. But I guess the biggest memory I have, first of all, you asked about the process. The process is one of, first, you have to be viable to be public. And that changes constantly. Right now, the public markets want to see a lot of velocity of growth and a lot of margin and a certain level of revenue. Some people think it's 100 million and above. Depends on the category where it can be, but it varies. And it varies every year by what people are seeing succeed, quote unquote, succeed in the public markets. Then you got to find a banker. And the bankers, if you've got a company that's IPO ready, the bankers want to take you public. So they do a bake off and they're going to tell you why they're great. And you pick one. And then you go through this long process. I can't remember. I feel like it was three months for us where you're doing the drafting and you're doing the filing and you, know, you contact the SEC and you send them the docs and then they send you revisions back and then you have to answer all their questions and then they send you questions back again and there's a lag. And you know, so you send in your first draft, you wait 
man, I, I think they've sped it up. But when I was doing it, I feel like we had to wait two or three weeks before we got their comments back. Then we have to respond. Then they do it again. And after a lot of this process is done, when you're getting close to the end and you can publish the red herring, you then go on a roadshow where you basically go out. It's not that different than when a founder goes out to pitch VCs for money. You go out to all these sources of capital and pitch over and over and over again. And it's the same pitch. And it's the same thing as an entrepreneur does. It's like, what a great question. I have a slide for that. So you go through that whole process and enough people want to buy your stock, then they're going to take you public because the bankers are committing to buy your stock, but they're really only committing in a very paper thin veil of a way over the fact that if there's not enough buyers, they're not the ones picking up your shares. They're just buying your shares so they can then sell them in the market to these people they've already lined up. And then comes the magical day. You know, it was a bit anticlimactic because I've always been paranoid and I'm sort of hope for the best, plan for the worst kind of guy. I'll tell you two quick stories about my IPO. The first one was the very first day we got together. We signed the underwriter's letter. I believe it was on a Thursday. And we got together with the lawyers on a Friday. Now, I'm a pretty frugal guy. And these are very expensive lawyers. I'm paying for their lawyers. I'm paying for my lawyers. It's like all these lawyers in the room. We work all day long. And at the end of the day, they're like, great. This was a great drafting session. So they call them the drafting sessions. And by the way, you couldn't do them in a way where you could control them either. I won't even get into financial printers and what a racket that is. But anyway, so the end of the day comes like, all right, we'll get together first thing Monday and start working on this again. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. No, we're going to get together tomorrow, Saturday morning. If you want to have breakfast with your family, that's fine. But we're going to work tomorrow and we're going to work Sunday and we're going to work every day until I have a public company because I don't believe you. I don't believe this company will get public because I've seen too many other people get their offerings shelved. So you do all the work and then the last minute say, oh, you know, it's not going to work out. And they put it on the shelf. Once you put it on the shelf, I only know of one instance where it came off the shelf. Usually it means you're done. And then you owe a lot of people a lot of money because it's not an inexpensive process. So we worked every day for call it three months. I don't remember how long it was exactly. Every day, but one, we took one Sunday off. I don't know, something I want to do with my family. When we priced our IPO, the market was up big, just like it had been up all the days prior. But the day we actually went out, we priced on a Thursday. We went out on a Friday. The day we actually went out, the market tanked huge. Our offering was actually delayed during the day. We got out. But what if that hadn't worked every day? What if we hadn't been able to price Thursday? What if Friday came along and the market tanked? The underwriters would have said, you know, let's wait. Let's wait and see how things shake out. Guess what? Monday was horrible. And so was the rest of the week. It was the beginning of the end. But for the difference of one day, I do not believe I would have had a public company. You know, there are times in your life when it's not that you have to work 100% of capacity all the time. That's not realistic. There's no such thing as work-life balance as an entrepreneur. But, you know, working hard is one thing. Working seven days a week for three months is another. So you can, your body can only handle so much. But there are times when you have to do it. Because if you don't, man, it's hard to suffer that kind of regret. How would I feel if because I was a little little more lenient, took a whole weekend off, two weekends off. And then instead of having a public company buy me, I have two or $3 million of debt and a death spiral down from there for all I know. Um, so anyway, that was, that was an important part of the experience to me. The other part was my wife asked me a few days later, she said, oh, my friend said we made a lot of money this week. I said, well, not really. You know, first of all, not my money. I never sold any shares. I did get paid when we took the company private. And secondly, I'd asked the underwriter at the very end, I said, you know, how can this now go wrong? So what do you mean? You're public. He said, no, how can they take the money away from me? He said, no one's ever asked me that. I said, okay, well, is there an answer? Well, yeah, actually there is one way. 
There is one way that during a period of time, there's sort of a right of rescission, which is very hard to do and unlikely. I've never seen it happen. How long does that happen? How long is that viable? And he said, 21 days or something. And I said, okay. And so for 21 days, in my mind, we weren't truly public. It wasn't there to stick. It's like an ACH transfer. They can be recalled, right? That's why people insist on wires. So that's a long ramble, but those are some of the insights perhaps of what it was like to take company public. Stressful, enjoyable. Stressful, enjoyable in memory. You know, IPOs, entrepreneurship, it's all like, I, my equation is it's like childbirth. If anybody remembered how painful it was, they'd never do it a second time. Yet amazingly, lots and lots of people do. So we remember the good stuff. I'm so glad I asked. Great. So uh, with that amazing story or stories, let's talk a little bit about the transition, right? The transition from entrepreneur, from public founder, to investor, right? And then, as you said, you've invested in 80 to 90 startups. Sounds like some of them have even gone public. You mentioned Lending Club. Why have you continued down this path of investing rather than maybe going back in the game and starting another company? You know, it's funny. For a long time, I was talking to another investor, a guy named David Z at Greylock. He's a really great guy about this exact point. It's like, it's always tempting, you know? So sort of to my childbirth example. For years and years and years, and actually even still now, sometimes there's an idea that I have or something that I see that just like, ah, oh, maybe I should do it again. But, you know, I get to live vicariously through a whole bunch of founders. I get to help when times are good. I get to help when times are bad. I get to be there when they need me. Let's put it that way. And that gives me an enormous amount of satisfaction. I really enjoy doing it. Uh, I know I have been of material value to some of my founders. I don't, I think all my founders are a positive reference, but I know that in some cases it's really mattered an enormous amount. And you're not going to be the person that changes the trajectory of the business and every investment you make, but sometimes you are. And, and that's pretty cool because, you know, I have one founder that told me, but without me, the company wouldn't have existed anymore. You know, like we sort of saved them from something. So you know, it it gives you a different type of enjoyment. Also, you learn a lot by being involved in lots of different types of businesses. A lot of the founders I'm backing are doing things that I don't have the capacity to do. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's always tempting, but it's a little hard for me to imagine that I would give up being able to work with all these different folks. But every once in a while, there's that one idea or that one thing that's big enough. You know, one of my favorite ways to know that I've got the right opportunity to invest in a company is when it's a company that in my own mind, I'm thinking, maybe I should quit what I'm doing and work with this guy or gal. You know, when you're so excited about what they're doing that you would want to join them, that really, to me, is a litmus test because then you know you're excited about what they're doing at a whole other level because, you know, I do really enjoy what I do. And on that note, I mean, you've publicly said that you like to back founders who make you say, wow, right? Can you give us some examples of this? Sure. You know, there's a company in my portfolio called Branch Metrics, Branch, and When I met that founder, he had been doing something else, but he had this new idea. And it was something that I literally said to him, I've been looking for this for 10 years. You know, they were sort of changing the way. They're sort of HTML for mobile. When I started off in the web, people really didn't understand how the web would evolve. And I was fortunate enough to have sort of a view inspired by a book that's on the shelf up there called Snow Crash of how the web would evolve and that where you enter the web would be the most valuable and important place. People later started to call those areas portals, and then search came in. And because of that, we cut deals with AOL, Excite, and Yahoo, and were able to really increase our exposure. And in the end, we're bigger than all of them combined for our categories. 
And so I had wanted to find that entry point for mobile. And I thought branch could be it. And that was just incredibly exciting to me. I'm still incredibly excited about that business. I think it's phenomenal. So that made me say, wow. Uh, there's a business out of New York called Transfix, where I had breakfast with the founders, two co-founders, Jonathan and Drew. And I had looked at the trucking space before, but they're telling me about an industry where basically technology hadn't touched it. You know, you have people hauling goods across the road in these 18-wheelers, and there's really very little tech. You know, the broker books it, they pick it up at some point. And then if they want to find them, they call them on the phone, you know? So being able to change that and technology enable it, I've looked at other businesses in the category, but I felt like they had the right model. And here's something about the entrepreneurs themselves that made me say, wow, you know, you've got this guy who grew up in a trucking lifestyle, meaning his family ran a trucking brokerage. They named the business after him when they brought him home from the hospital. And then this hardcore French tech a crap where, you know, it was almost never good enough, like just so demanding. And I love that the old way and the new way, but they both wanted the new way for this industry. You know, I thought that was a great combination. Sometimes it's their own personal experience. You know, it's, there's uh, people who've been through really difficult times and, and come through it, or sometimes elite soldiers. There's usually just something it's, it's, I do need both the person, the wow. So it's a, it is a quote I use a lot. You know, I also very often say I need five things to make an investment. People, 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 a great idea and a huge market if it works. I have occasionally bet on the people alone. And while I know that's worked for some folks, my own history with it has been mixed. And so I really almost always felt like I want the great people, but I really want them to have the idea I want to back. I'm not as interested in sort of investing in the potential for a pivot. There are folks that do that. They tend to play a volume game. And while 80 companies might seem a lot to have invested in over a decade, that's nothing. You know, a seed investor that does seven to 10 deals a year. At one point, I remember I was talking to a VC that had started doing seed that year. And I was like, how do you like it? Great. Really? So how many deals have you done? We've done 15. How long have you been doing it? Three months. Like, what? <laughs> You've done two years worth of deals in three months? That's great. It's like, how do you even keep in touch with those people? I mean, I had a requirement of my own that when I was doing seed investing exclusively, you know, I always said, I have to see you once a quarter. You can see me as many times as you want. And when I see you, I want to sit down with you. I want to actually, you know, buy you a drink, you know, coffee, whatever. And, you know, it, it didn't occur to me that people would take this totally passive model of investing where they're literally just throwing dart after dart after dart, just waiting to see if any of them hit something. So anyway, it is a combination of the people and their ideas that usually are what makes me say, well, and it doesn't always work out. I had one entrepreneur that early on pitched me on an idea where it was at the beginning of the sharing economy, you know, things like get around, were getting launched and TaskRabbit was out there and, you know, a lot of different things and, and sharing was an exciting idea. And what they were creating was a model where they said, you know, when you rent a car, they check your credit to see if you can pay. But in the sharing economy, how do they check your personality credit? How do they know that you're not going to trash the car? How do they know that you're a, a good actor? And so he was going to create, in essence, an alternative credit score, not for your financial ability to pay, but for how you took care of things. And just basically, you know, get Airbnb, someone's renting your house. Well, okay, how do I feel about this person? Remember, it's early on. And so I felt like that could be extremely valuable because so much was happening in the sharing economy. Did not work out. And it was, having said that, an idea that I got excited about the first time I heard it. I've heard it again since, by the way. I, don't, I still don't think it's worked out. <laughs> Some of it's also just impossible to even say. You just get this special feeling. It's sort of, 
you know, I was telling a friend this recently, or, you know, I was, I spent 10 years as a freelance food and wine writer. And when you go to a trade tasting, at least the way I handle it, and I think most professionals handle it, you sip and you spit and you make your notes and then you move on. And so I went to his Infidel tasting once. Infidel is pretty pronounced and strong wine for the people watching that don't actually drink wine. And uh, I decided I wanted to taste all the wines. And I had tasted over a hundred wines and was still going. And what I began to notice was even when you're sipping and spitting, it does affect you. But when you taste that many wines, if somebody wasn't putting something that was just an absolute fruit bomb in front of me, I just went to the next thing. You lose all nuance, you know, a hundred wines in. And by the way, people, I used to judge a professional wine competition and they wouldn't let you taste more than 14 wines a day. They felt like that was the limit. Anyway, my point is, when you see enough things at some point, it's just really got to stand out in an almost visceral way. And when it does, to me, that's the wow. And that's the thing that sort of you just, it's almost like you feel it. You get this buzz, you get this excitement, you get this tingle. And I don't always know if I can define why or how, but it happens. And then those are my favorite days. They don't happen that often. You kind of develop your own spidey senses for entrepreneurs. And I guess um, you know, one thing that I wonder is, how long do you spend evaluating the team and the company before making an investment? So that varies a lot by stage. I used to notice and tell entrepreneurs that when I was a seed investor, writing relatively small checks into their round would usually take me three meetings to get to a point of decision. What I would always say on the first meeting, if they wanted to know it is, look, I can only do one thing in a first meeting. I can pass or I can say, I want to spend more time with you. And if I spend more time with you long enough, then I'll get to the point of getting to a decision and hopefully that decision will go the way you want it to go. Now, when you go later stage, I mean, I've had deals I've worked on for months. Literally, in one case, I think I worked on a deal for, I mean, this will tell you something about the deal, but I think I might've worked on it for two months. There was an enormous amount of research required. It was in a category I didn't know. I didn't know the industry at all. I had to get to know the people in the industry. I had to understand, you know, diligence can expand and expand and expand. What you end up getting stuck with, unfortunately, is the amount of time available to you based on the deal. You know, some deals are moving so fast, you just have to do as much of work as you can in a relatively short period of time. Sometimes you're right back to that virtually 24-7. I don't think I've ever pulled an all-nighter on diligence on a deal, but man, you know, you're definitely working the weekends. I mean, you're, you're spending the time trying to figure out what you need to figure out, and you've only got so much time to do it. And that can be deleterious to both parties, I think, because you know, it's usually better when both sides get to, get to know each other well enough to know what it's going to be like to work with each other and get to understand each other's business. While it might seem like I need to understand their business, but they don't need to understand mine, they actually do at least a little bit. They need to understand what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a certain type of investment. I'm looking for unbounded upside. You know, we don't want to be on a journey together if you want to ride a bicycle and I want to ride a jet or vice versa. So it's unfortunate when there's not enough time. But at the same time, for any entrepreneur that's listening to this and thinking about fundraising, you do have to control the pace. A time pressure is useful because if people have too much time, then that can go poorly. Basically, you know, you want a comfortable amount of time. And I think a comfortable amount of time, maybe two weeks from when you've started it, is a fastish comfortable, but certainly doable. More would be a little bit better. Less is still doable. But again, stage is important. You know, the bigger the check, the more work you're probably going to have to do. Because the bigger the check, the more mature the business is, therefore inferring access to more information. Yeah. And Ben, so you're seeing, obviously, a lot of deal flow constantly. FinTech is a big area of focus for you. Are there any areas of the industry that get you excited these days more than others? 
you know, there's some years and weeks and months where that's a question I can say yes about right now. There's not. You know, insurance tech has been interesting to me for multiple years. I'm still intrigued. It's just I feel like a lot of categories have been covered well. There's big data-based businesses are still exciting. I mean, but there's so much. The quote you used of mine earlier where I like entrepreneurs that make me say, wow, was really an answer to a question that I got asked a lot. It was, what categories do you focus on? What do you look for? You know, what industries, what sectors? And I was like, yeah, you know, I do a lot of different sort of things. FinTech has been very good for me, but so has marketplace businesses. I've done hardware. I did Dropcam. You know, I've done mobile. I've, I've done AI. I mean, there's, it is not a narrow band. And that's where I finally realized that when I thought about all the businesses I'd invested in, from trucking to mobile to AI to fintech businesses to marketplaces, it was always an entrepreneur that made me say, wow, in some manner. And that's where that comes from. Now, it is true that in certain times, areas percolate up. And like, as an example, insurance tech did, you know, three or four years ago, I made my first insure tech investment about six years ago. Then about four years ago, I spoke at, I think, the first or second InsureTech Connect conference, and I really started to get to know that industry, and I got really excited. I made a handful of investments for my own personal book. I backed Health IQ, which is a very cool business for life insurance and ultimately also probably health insurance. You know, I backed a company called Cover, where you could take a picture of anything and, and get it insured. It's a fascinating and enormous industry. But this is not a moment in time where there's a specific subsector that I'm spending extra time on. Although I've become more global in my focus, you know, before COVID, I spent a lot of time traveling primarily to Europe and to the UK, looking at different opportunities over there and getting to know a lot of the investors over there. And during COVID, because the world is so flat that it all appears on this piece of glass, I've looked at entrepreneurs from all over the world. I made one LATAM investment. You know, I do think now we're in a time where some of the limits on entrepreneurs of place and access are eroding a bit. You know, I launched www.pitch-ben.com so that anybody in the world could pitch me a, a one-minute video pitch, and I promised to reply to them with video advice. I'm a little behind. I think I might I need to do that one. <laughs> Maybe after this, I'll go on and see if I've got a window to get responses back to the Pitch Ben folks. But anyway, it's uh, so there's nothing specific, but just stuff is so exciting. I mean, let's face it, the technology just evolves and evolves and evolves, and it creates all kinds of things. Here's a, the final point on this. I love it when entrepreneurs show me a vision of the future I either hadn't thought of or they thought of in a totally different way. You know, that's a real wow moment when you sort of, oh, I didn't realize that an entrepreneur pitched me a chemicals business. It's like, wow, another industry untouched by technology. And that really excited me. But, you know, it was very early and matching things up stage and it's less sector, but stage is important when you're thinking about who the investor is, right? And so what I might invest personally as an investor, as a seed, uh, if it's a series A or B, that's you know going to be a deal I'm looking at for any A at the moment. And that's something important for me to think about how that, that looks. And so the level of proof I need for a later stage deal is going to be very different than the level of proof I need for a seed stage deal. And I guess uh, you mentioned COVID, of course, that's the big elephant in everyone's room these days. How has your investing experience been throughout 2020 and specifically for fintech? Have there been any surprises that you've seen? Well, let's start with the second question first. I think that in my own portfolio, you saw a lot of people with a lot of uncertainty at the beginning of COVID in fintech, um, because what you didn't know was how credit 
would work out? You know, would you see increased defaults? Would you see, I mean, there's all kinds of issues. During this period of time, I funded Renault's second business. Personally, Renault started Lending Club. He started a new business. It's absolutely doing exceptional. And one of the reasons I was confident in doing that is Renault basically launched a business that lived through 2008. Like he's been through some of the most destructive times in fintech around. He knows what weathering that storm looks like. But a lot of people haven't weathered this particular storm. I mean, I launched my first company out of college on Black Monday. Dow is down like 22%. I mean, worse than anything we've seen since in a single day, I believe. So, you know, and then I went through the bursting of the bubble, and then I went through 2001, and then I went through the 2008, and and on and on. I mean, like, it's, I don't need to do a lot more of these. I mean, I have a feeling there'll be more in the future, but it is a fascinating thing to sort of try to figure out what's going to happen. You don't know the answer. And that uncertainty creates a lot of trauma. And I think that trauma was felt by both the entrepreneurs and by board members. And so people had to try and figure out what to do. A lot of people had to sort of think about if they should right-size their companies. And I think many companies came out of this stronger in the sense that, you know, entrepreneurs that are able to raise a lot of capital tend to spend a lot of capital. Now, they may be spending ahead of need or even ahead of appropriate use. And it's just the nature of things. It's like meetings expand to take the time. Money gets spent to cover the money you have, particularly if you're able to raise more money in the future. And so you had plenty of companies where, you know, they were very convinced they needed the teams they had, but when they really went through the process and looked at it and trimmed, they came out the other side realizing they were that much stronger, that they unknowingly were carrying weight that they did not need. And so that was, in a lot of cases, a difficult but useful thing for these companies. But so that uncertainty was a challenge that impacted. On the investing itself, to the first question, I think at the start of COVID, you focused on you know, yourself and your family and your firm, and then immediately thereafter, your entrepreneurs and where they were and trying to help make sure they were in as good a situation as they could be. And that took a period of time. And that, took, that was the time when people were figuring out what they might need to do inside their companies, et cetera, et cetera. Once you got through that period where those folks were, I'll say comfortable, not because that's the right word, but where they were in a position where you felt you didn't need to be there a lot, you know, where the entrepreneur had sort of gotten his or her view of where things needed to be and was acting on it. Then you return to looking at investing opportunities. First, people look at what did we miss? And then they look at new opportunities. And, and it, it got back to normal a lot quicker than I would have expected. You know, I judge a lot of startup competitions over Zoom, right? Like this room, it's got a lot of Zoom hours on it. So that part has been interesting because I do think it's gotten a variety. I made my first investment, I think it was, yeah, my very first investment without actually meeting a person uh, not that long ago because I'm willing to have an outdoor breakfast or a walk. I have usually, you know, when I've gotten close, said, okay, let's now actually meet in person. But we'll see. That one, we'll probably end up finding a time for coffee before it's too far out. So I I think COVID's been interesting. It's been, it's interesting in the sense of how it's impacted the flow of business because there's actually a lot of efficiencies to this model of I mean, think about, you know, I used to try to pack my calendar and a packed calendar might be eight meetings a day, maybe more, but let's call it eight. Well, now, man, I can fit in a heck of a lot more than that. Now, I'm not always booking 20 meeting days, but there are plenty of meetings where I see a lot more startups than that combination of startup competitions and one-on-ones and, you know, a half hour Zoom is much more efficient than a one hour physical meeting. And then there's no transition time, but, you know, we'd all like a little more normalcy. I do think a lot of the things that we're learning and experiencing and benefiting from in COVID as it relates to technology and meeting patterns will continue on. But, you know, I, I think 
going forward, I think it's totally reasonable to have first meetings by Zoom, maybe even second meetings and some diligence questions, but I would love to be able to just come visit your office and see how you work and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of it's here to stay, but we still want to kick the tires, right? Yeah, you mentioned Renaud. He's a good friend of the show, and we recently hosted him. Obviously, very impressive entrepreneur. Well, Ben, this has been great. You know, uh, extremely happy that you joined us. Before we go, we always love to talk a little bit about a little bit of your personal side. Um, is, are there any hobbies? that you are particularly a fan of. You've mentioned uh, wine tasting. Uh, you've mentioned quite a few things. Maybe you know, something you want to share? You know, it's funny. When I was an entrepreneur for 25 years, from 12 to 37, I really only had two things I cared about. I cared about my company, whatever company it was at the time. And I cared about, for lack of a better term, whoever I was dating until I got engaged. And I cared about my fiance, who's now my wife. And then I moved to Incline Village, Nevada, and took the company private, went semi-retired. And all of a sudden, I had a life. I had friends. I took up golf. I started learning about wine. I started skiing. Then I moved here, and I became an investor, and I was proud of how well-rounded I was. And what I realized is I'm right back to where I was before. I care about my entrepreneurs and the businesses I fund, and I care about my family. And that's pretty much it. You know, I respect wine. I enjoyed writing about it. We don't drink at home. I don't play any sports, and I don't watch any sports. I like to read. But, you know, not at a level that's sort of material. What I've discovered, my wife gets angry at me whenever we used to go to a party before COVID because we would go, we'd see our friends, 15 or 30 minutes later, I'd ask if I could leave. And she's like, why can't you just stay here and have fun? I'm like, this isn't fun. These guys want to talk about baseball or football or basketball. I could care less. They're nice guys. I've exhausted what I have to talk to them about. I'm ready to leave. She's like, you know, can't you just be social? I'm like, I'm social all day long. My life is social. I'm social with entrepreneurs. I'm social with other VCs. I'm social with people in industry that can help my entrepreneurs. But if it's not attached to my entrepreneurs and the business of that entrepreneurship, you know, I mean, I'm not a fan of vacations. I'm not opposed to them. I I think it's nice to, to get away, but I'm fine getting away, going outside and sitting in the sun, reading a book. So I am a pretty shallow person in that way. My family, my founders, my firm, that's pretty much it for me. There's not much else I need. And that's probably the reason that I have not suffered much in COVID because I get all those things. I get them through Zoom. I would much rather get them in person. I am a social creature and that I tend to, you know, my interactions tend to be human, not not glass-based, but that's it. It's funny. Sometimes I, and I say this and it might sound a little jerky and I don't mean it that way. It's just sometimes entrepreneurs will, or someone will call and they'll start wanting to talk about something like wine. And I'll be like, oh God, really? I won't say that, but I'll think to myself, so we're going to waste a bunch of time on this irrelevant stuff because, you know, life's short and I know what I love. I love entrepreneurship. And so if I have a hobby, it's entrepreneurship. I have a career, it's entrepreneurship. I have a passion, it's entrepreneurship. It's all that, that and my family. And that's pretty much all. I'm not sure I can come up with anything else. Oh, we do play D&D on the weekend sometimes. My, uh, my son runs a grown-up D&D group for us. He's 17, but... I've gotten a group of friends together who happen to usually be other investors or entrepreneurs, and we, we play D&D. So that's interesting. But it's an occasional thing. I, in some ways, I can definitely relate. And you sound like the kind of person that you would maybe you would travel, go on vacation to a random city around the world, and you probably want to meet the local entrepreneurs when you're there rather than see the sites. Well, my favorite vacation is not a vacation, but 
when I get to go to a country and meet a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. Now, I, admittedly, I definitely want some time to tune out. You know, my wife and I made a rule when I was taking the company public, we agreed that the weekends would be sacred. You know, well, not when we were taking the company public, but before that, when things were really getting ridiculous. Like it was when we had our first child or were about to. She said, I don't care if you pull all-nighters all week long, just give us the weekends. And I agreed to that and stuck to it. And I think it's a great thing. Now, these days, I've actually backed away from that rule a little bit because sometimes, at least in the pre-COVID times, if my entrepreneurs needed me on this weekend, I just said, I'm fine with helping you on the weekends. My only requirement is you do need to come to me because I'm not going to short the family. But when I make those trips, it's sort of like five days of work and then a day on an island or you know, take a boat somewhere, look around. I love nature's beauty and all of that. But like you can drive from here to LA and stop in Carmel and stand on the cliffs and have a, a snack. And that half an hour, an hour is incredibly refreshing. And I do like beaches, but net, net, I like, you know, you, you start to itch. You know, it's like the whole put the email away thing. Maybe, I mean, you know, I don't know. Somebody's better at that than I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Well, Ben, thank you so much. Really great conversation. Congratulations on everything. I really envy your lifestyle. Definitely uh, exciting stuff going on. So I, I want to say that now you're definitely a friend of the show and you are always invited to stop by, particularly, especially after COVID. Great to be on. And thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wardsome Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 